Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. In seconds, the geographer Richard Walker will tell us what the original New Deal could teach us about a Green New Deal. And then the political scientist and legal scholar Aziz Rana will explore the lack of a left internationalism. First, the Green New Deal, about which Behind the News will be doing many more shows. Richard Walker is a professor emeritus of geography at Berkeley. He's been on this show several times, mostly talking about California. He's also director of the Living New Deal, that's livingnewdeal, all one word, dot org, a project devoted to cataloging the immense achievements and legacy of the New Deal. Here's Richard Walker to talk about what the original could teach the Green New Deal. So now we're uh, facing uh, the uh, hopes for, certainly not, <laughs> I wouldn't say the possibilities for a Green New Deal, uh, but let's talk about the original New Deal. What, if any, lessons does the, uh, the original hold for the present? Well, it has any number of lessons. The first one is simply the ambition of the Green New Deal resolution is really in line with the original New Deal, which had very high ambitions and introduced programs across a very broad spectrum of problems facing the country. So the Green New Deal, in a way, tries to do the same thing. It doesn't just address uh, climate change, but also social justice, jobs, wages, infrastructure, modernization, and more. It seemed like a, a lot of uh, mainstream, not necessarily conservative, but fairly center, centrist types, object to uh, you know, the real hash of programs in it. They think it's you know, too broad, too inclusive, that uh, we should be more focused on climate alone. What do you say to that? Yes, I saw a Washington Post editorial to that effect, and I was appalled. I think it's so narrow-minded, and I think it's politically dead in the water, too. I admire the ambition of the Green New Deal's approach to climate change. But uh, the view that that's the only thing you do, I think, is enormous error. First of all, it just treats our problems today as if a climate change or maybe uh, broadened medical health insurance are the only things we face. But actually, we face real dramatic problems for the working people, for wages quality of jobs, and, of course, massive inequality because of the triumph of the elites, uh, the corporations, the financiers feathering their nests for the last 30 years while working people's wages have gone nowhere. So uh, you have to address that problem, which has led to tremendous political alienation in the country and the kind of right-wing so-called populism that we see with Trump and the Republicans today. So if you don't address the needs of working people, you can kiss all political solutions and all major policies goodbye. You'll still be living in the world a la Trump. I think a lot of people are not really fully aware today of the breadth of the New Deal's achievements. Now, you've been working on this project, the Living New Deal, which has been cataloging its, uh, its heritage, its legacy to today, which certainly uh, you know, still populates a good deal of our physical infrastructure. So just give us some sense of the breadth of these programs and what the heritage has been. I mean, I was amazed when we started the Living New Deal. I knew a fair amount about the New Deal. But at one point, we decided, OK, we should write... Uh, summaries of all New Deal programs so that we'd be a kind of Wikipedia source on the New Deal. And as we started to do this, they added up and added up until we hit 60, and we still hadn't done all of them. And they covered pretty much everything from financial reform to farm support to industrial price and trade policies, housing, public housing, but also housing finance, and recovery, of course, a lot of conservation programs, tremendous a number of those. And then, of course, the well-known ones like Social Security and the relief programs. And the relief programs uh, were many and varied. Some of them people have heard of, like CCC, Civilian Conservation Corps, and the WPA, the Works Progress Administration. But some like the CWA, the Civil Works Administration, or the NYA, the National Youth Administration, almost nobody's heard of. And these things were very effective in employing, providing jobs for upwards uh, probably 12 to 15 million Americans who were out of work. Other than the, uh, the physical uh, heritage of it, the, you know, the post offices, the bridges, are these still, we still depend upon this infrastructure. That's right. I mean, it was 
not just a relief program, but a program of investment all over the country in infrastructure, civic works, of course, but uh, the biggest single program was road building, and that includes bridges and all that. And then, of course, uh, dams and waterworks, domestic uh, and urban water supplies, sewage projects, uh, you name it, they did it if it were it could call it a public work that is not building for private industry or private individuals. So it was incredible. And also it was bringing large parts of the country into the 20th century. It was a modernization program saying, okay, we want a modern road system. We want a modern electric grid and we need to bring electricity even to the most remote back corners of the country. And that's what they did. So you can imagine something today that might be similar about bringing the internet to the everybody, a very high-speed internet, or bringing energy conservation programs and green energy to everyone, every town, every rural area, every household, every community. The other week I interviewed uh, Daniel Aldena-Cohen uh, about uh, the possibility of a housing program in a Green New Deal, but he emphasized the fact that a lot of the architects, well, literally the architects of the New Deal, uh, went for beauty. Uh, the dams of the TVA were meant to be beautiful as well as uh, functional. The New Deal had plenty of room for art and commissioned literature. I mean, these were not Philistines. Oh, that's absolutely right. And it's like sort of the cherry on the sundae or the frosting on the cake. I mean, they did all this practical stuff all over, long-lasting, well-built, serving the public, serving the people and, and communities all over. But they just added this element of, oh, let's build things that are beautiful and uplift the public spirits in this very depressing time. Well, we could sure use that again today, too, because... It is a pretty de depressing time. And I also think the American people view government as this kind of boring, you know, at best, a kind of boring practical necessity, but not something that brings an elegance and an uplift and music and theater and artworks to their everyday lives. But that was what the New Dealers thought should be done. And it was a tiny part of the cost of the overall programs, but it added so much. And even today, people look back at the New Deal and probably the one thing they remember most are the murals in all the post offices and civic buildings. Yeah, I remember that uh, conference you uh, helped organize uh, in the midst of the financial crisis, 2008-2009, about uh, the New Deal and, and uh, its lessons for uh, getting out of that crisis. And somebody in the audience mentioned the fact that there's a sculpture somewhere in the Berkeley campus with a plaque that brags that no funds were used, public funds were used in commissioning or you know, executing this sculpture. I mean, this, <laughs> the sensibility uh, for, uh, that's evolved over the last 70 years is, is quite remarkable in its devolution. No, that's right. I mean, it's, we talk about sort of dominance, the market ideology, but it's a kind of Ebenezer Scrooge business ideology. Well, it's not even that because Scrooge himself was not luxurious, but luxury in the corporate sector and private sector, building enormous, grotesquely enormous houses for the wealthy, country clubs, and, you know, providing art in the skyscrapers of corporations, all that is viewed as okay, but the public should get nothing but the leanest and meanest. And it's, it's generally a part of the revolt against the New Deal that started once the capitalists were back on their feet. The business people said, oh, no, we, we can't have the government providing all this good stuff and this important stuff because uh, people need to believe that only private industry, private capital can provide the things they need. And this is the uh, magnificent illusion of, bourgeois ideology for 200 years. The government is just a, perhaps a necessary evil and accessory rather than something that's part of our daily lives and part of the way we, we not only govern ourselves, but the way we live and enjoy ourselves as well. The pursuit of happiness doesn't have to be just a private enterprise. It can be a collective public governmental enterprise as well. A rap against the original New Deal, which you hear fairly often, partly because 
Hillaryites, I think, and, and those sorts of Democrats have revived it uh, as a rap against uh, Sandersism and the revival of social democracy. Um, but you know, people on the left are quick uh, to uh, pick it up. People on the further left, especially who are skeptical of social democracy, the New Deal was racist. That the exclusions uh, in social security and housing and many other uh, New Deal programs were uh, adjuncts of white supremacy. What do you say to that rap? Well, I say it's completely ahistorical, for one. I mean, you have to go back to the 1930s. Where was America at that time? This was a white supremacist country. Uh, racism was the was the rule of the day. Jim Crow laws, not only in the South, but uh, widespread in the North. Racial segregation. And white people very begrudging of giving anything to people of color. Not just African Americans, but Native Americans. Think of what we did, the kind of long-term genocide and uh, kind of suppression of Native peoples, Latinos, Mexican Americans, Filipinos, and so on. And so the New Deal comes along. And yes, it was not the civil rights movement. That came a generation later. But it meant to serve all of the people if it could. And most of the programs are very wide-reaching and involved um, Native people, Black people, Mexican people, Asian people who worked in these relief projects, who had um, education projects or um, children's health projects aimed at their people and so on. So we've written up on the Living New Deal website, there's, I think, an important section we've written up talking about the inclusion of those excluded peoples by the New Deal. And it's a pretty impressive record. Of course, it's not a perfect record because this was not yet the civil rights movement. They did allow Southern Democrats, in order to get their votes, they had to exclude, and I might add, Western agribusiness. To get their votes, they excluded farm workers and domestics from Social Security the first time around. That was later corrected, but not until after, afterward, 10, 20 years later. There were other kinds of exclusions that were not good. On the other hand, the New Deal's Indian policy was the best ever. It was the first actually sort of progressive Native policy that this country had seen. I mean, we would do it differently now. Uh, It might seem kind of paternalistic now, but uh, they did make a very genuine effort to allow native sovereignty, native education, put money into reservations, and so on. So it's a mixed performance, of course, but it's not like this was just a racist, kind of led by racist. In fact, most of the leading New Dealers, like Eleanor Roosevelt, Harold Ickes, Harry Hopkins, were outspoken anti-racists at the time and were trying to do everything they could to include people of color. I'm speaking with Richard Walker, Professor Emeritus of Geography at Berkeley and Director of the Living New Deal Program. One particular area, sore spot, is uh, housing uh, and a lot of the redlining practices that would affect uh, the geographical pattern of housing for generations afterwards uh, happened then. Uh, What about the the redlining? How did that come to be? Well, you know, as an urbanist, I just wrote a review of Richard Rothstein's uh, Color of Law because I think it's so wrong. It's so ahistorical. And it even... To the degree it does history, it gets it wrong. If you look back at housing and racial segregation, it was ubiquitous uh, in America, outside the South. The South had a kind of different system where black people lived on the back alleys in the town, so it looked like they were closer, but they were closer, but they were kept in their place by Jim Crow and a whole system of social hierarchy. In the North, where there was less of that clear, society was much more mobile and uh, less clear about those hierarchies. Racial segregation became a very popular policy amongst white people. But you have to uh, know that it goes back to the 19th century when they started using the first covenants. Deed covenants are created to keep nuisances away from wealthier neighborhoods. And uh, that meant not just people of color, but it meant, of course, immigrants at that time, mostly Europeans, but regarded in the same negative way. And, of course, industry. So you would try to create neighborhoods where everybody had deed covenants and people 
They could keep out the noxious uses and the noxious people. Then in the early 20th century, they created zoning came into being, and it was set up in a way to uh, separate uses and separate the uses and set up areas to protect upper class residential, single family residential areas. And they sometimes were explicitly racial and sometimes weren't, but the effect was exactly the same. And so all that precedes New Deal housing policy by up to 50 years. So, gosh, when New Deal housing policy, the HOLC, Homeowners Loan Corporation, which was trying to defend people going into foreclosure to help them, and later the Federal Housing Administration, which was going to support the 30-year low-interest loan, which created, by the way, a jump of 20% in the percentage of homeowners in America after the war. So when those rules were written, they went along with a kind of existing racial segregation that was there. And uh, there's this view that somehow the FHA or HOLC imposed these rules on a very reluctant America. And that's, that's just nonsense. Basically, they were kind of going along with the, the existing racial divisions divisions between single-family homes and apartments and between residential areas, upper-class ones, and industry and working-class areas. They allowed, I mean, zoning always allowed working-class people to live close to the industry. And in fact, the red lines were never explicit, well, rarely explicitly racial. They were usually to divide off kind of lower working class and industrial areas from upper class, high-end, single-family residential areas. What was the hand of the real estate industry in in, in the redlining? The real estate people were right at the center of this because it isn't just sort of general white preferences for segregation. The real estate industry had a direct financial interest in making sure that it could create these exclusive zones, upper class districts like the Country Club District in Kansas City or Roland Park in in Baltimore or Forest Hills in New York or St. Francis Woods in San Francisco. They want to make sure their investments in these upper class districts were not going to be jeopardized by just any old riffraff moving in. Zoning, these zoning laws, these deed covenants, had already been deeply supported by the National Association of Real Estate Boards, who had become very powerful in the interwar period. And they actually literally stepped in to help uh, Congress write the rules for the HOLC and the FHA. And then once those administrations are in place, um, it's really uh, something people forget to note, is that the NALRED, chief economist, Homer Hoyt, literally wrote the rules for the FHA redlining policy. The Roosevelt administration uh, just basically went along with it, though. Yes, I think they did eventually. They did basically go along with it. Uh, They were not going to buck the racial structure. There were some of them did buck it uh, when they tried to integrate the original Civilian Conservation Corps have integrated camps, and usually then the locals would object, the South objected, so they started separating uh, white and black and people of color camps. They didn't exclude people of color from the CCC, but they did separate the living areas because locals demanded that. And uh, same thing with FHA policy. They did not oppose the overall racial structure of America at that time. You could hope they had done better, that they had been leaders in civil rights, and some of them wanted to be. But Roosevelt was a pragmatic politician. He had a lot on its plate, and uh, he was trying to keep his coalition together. And he could not do that, he thought, if he bucked the races. And we could argue about that, and maybe he was wrong. Um, but the New Deals did so much other good than I'm, the fact that it did, wasn't the civil rights movement, I guess, seems to me a flaw, but not a fatal flaw. 
Finally, uh, the political environment. Roosevelt had big congressional majorities. He was swept into office multiple times with big margins of victory. Now, of course, we have a Senate controlled by crazy Republicans, a House uh, with some lively progressive members, uh, new ones especially, but, you know, most of the, uh, the, the Democratic delegation is, is really nothing to write home about. And you know, we have a cretinous president rather than um, a somewhat enlightened aristocrat. How do we navigate the present political terrain, um, or is this a project for the longer term? Yeah, I think that's a very good question, and I don't pretend to have the answer to that. I do think, though, that our best hope in a time when I think there is a, a very serious delegitimization of the ruling elite right now and of the political elite because of Trump. The situation is so degraded that we do have a pretty solid majority of Americans who think this is, this is nuts and we have to do better. So I think they're going to look to more enlightened, intelligent, and progressive leadership I'm kind of optimistic about that. And uh, Trump may have, be doing us a favor just because his administration is so disgusting that people are really turned off. Now, the other thing we have is climate change. At least two-thirds of Americans think climate change is a serious problem. We can see it around us in floods, hurricanes, droughts, fires. So I think you can mobilize a lot of people around a green a Green New Deal because of climate change. And then, of course, the economy looks kind of good and it gets a lot of, there's a lot of tub thumping about how great it's been. But you have to remember the Great Recession was really catastrophic for a lot of people. There were literally millions of people suffered in the Great Recession and our recovery from the Great Recession. You keep hearing, oh, this is the longest recovery on, on record. That's because we were so far down that trying to recover from that pit, that was a long way to climb out of it. And then we discover, after 10 years of recovery, now that wages haven't budged, that a lot of jobs are terrible and they're not protected by unions and uh, they're much more exposed to hazards because regulations have been cut. I think a lot of everyday Americans are very well, well aware of that and would look for a real improvement in the quality of jobs, raising wages, and less inequality. The final point I'll make is that uh, we see a split America. We tend to fall back on very lazy kinds of simplifications about urban America and rural America or evangelical America and modern, progressive, rational America and so on. But the fact is that Trump captured a lot of votes of people who were pretty desperate after 30 years of deindustrialization, of decline in small towns, small industrial cities, rural areas. And that's real. And I think, you know, one thing I think the Green New Deal program doesn't address enough, but that the New Deal did address was this problem of rural decline and rural suffering. We need a massive investment, job creation public progressive program to aid the damaged areas, the declining areas, and bring them into the 21st century the way the New Deal brought so much of the backwoods America into the 20th century. And you could do that through, you know, you can imagine the possibilities using in small towns, you know, massive investment in improving their schools, improving their waterworks for clean water, their sewage plants, building new civic institutions, improving parks, and insulating buildings and homes. And you could have teams of skilled workers with unskilled youth in these places that are now knocking their brains out with oxycontins, actually learning skills and doing useful work in their communities. And I think people would really support that. They would say, oh, I can see the evidence that this is serving me, my community, my kids, my people. That was Richard Walker, Professor Emeritus of Geography at Berkeley and Director of the Living New Deal, livingnewdeal, all one word, dot org, a project devoted to researching the New Deal and spreading the word about it. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
That was some of the first movement of Beethoven's Spring Sonata, performed by Itzhak Perlman and Vladimir Ashkenazi. I know I'm pushing it, but I'm sick of this cold gray stuff. Next, the lack of a left internationalism. Aziz Rana is a professor of law at Cornell. He also has a PhD in political science. In his own words, his focus is on how the shifting notions of race, citizenship, and empire have shaped legal and political identity since the founding of the U.S. He had an article on the Jacobin website recently, noting the lack of a serious internationalism on the newly energized left and what might be done about it. Aziz Rana. We've seen uh, the surprising incursion of a social democratic politics into uh, the U.S. discourse, but we haven't seen uh, that much progress on uh, thinking about the rest of the outside world. What do you think is the problem? Why, as you say, is there so little in the way of a left internationalism? I think there's a few different things that are going on. The first is just that the Democratic Party for decades really has accepted a bipartisan consensus about how to think about the U.S. and the world, which is really essentially a variant of Cold War nationalism. This is the idea that the U.S. interests are the world's interests because the U.S. is committed to freedom and equality from the founding. And for this reason, it has a special responsibility to play on the global stage as the first nation among equals. This justifies a continuous exercise of international police power. And it also justifies the idea that for the U.S., international legal constraints really aren't binding. The U.S. can move in and out of what the law might require because ultimately the country is an exceptional country and it's engaged in the exceptional work of backstopping the post-war order. And that's a view that from Obama to Bush was essentially shared. So there's a kind of established position. And then I think there's a a second big issue, which is that really starting following World War II in the early days of the Cold War, the classic left bases of, of politics and of social movement activism, and here especially the labor movement, frankly, accepted a cleaving of domestic and foreign, where foreign policy is something that is left to this bipartisan consensus and domestic policy, particularly over what were viewed as bread and butter issues about the material improvement of, of citizens. Well, that's the place for political contestation. That's had a really significant effect on really the life of the country and the ways in which foreign policy is not understood as something that's about the everyday material experience and needs of, of working people. Now, Obama is an interesting case because he came into office, he campaigned and came into office as something of an anti-war candidate. And then he actually left, he and Ben Rhodes, complaining about the blob, the whole national security establishment in D.C. and in the punditry corps that put constraints on his freedom uh, to uh, query or criticize inherited U.S. policy. How do you read what happened to him? It's a remarkable indication of the limited effect of even massive um, political organizing around foreign policy and actually redirecting the orientation of the state. So, you know, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the reason why Obama was elected was not just because of the financial crisis and the particularities of his own charismatic personality, but that he was the anti-war candidate. I mean, that's the thing that differentiated him from Clinton. And it's certainly true that he uh, planned at the beginning of his first term to close, for example, Guantanamo, which was um, a massive eyesore for the country. But it's also the case that what he did almost immediately was to turn over foreign policy precisely to the hawks. So you'd think that if you beat Clinton because you're the anti-war candidate, Clinton wouldn't then become secretary of state. And you wouldn't give senior positions to Biden, who is one of the most vociferous defenders of the war um, and of you know truly terrible policies like carving up Iraq into different mini sectarian states, the VP position, or have somebody like Samantha Power as so closely tied to the foreign policy goals. That's an indication of the extent to which he really, at the end of the day, accepted the baseline principles of Cold War American imperialism and primacy. And then it's not a surprise that that led down to the down the path to a variety of policies that look quite similar to what you'd see during the Bush years, like drone strikes. Now, the way I read the critique at the end is really an internal debate. And you can see this internal debate even in books like the Rowan Farrow book that came out about uh, maybe six months or a year ago, calling for a, a greater focus on diplomacy, that there's clearly a debate that exists within a foreign policy establishment about what you might think of as soft versus hard power and the extent to which there should be more investment in the State Department and diplomatic efforts, less of a focus on the hard edge of the defense establishment, um, more willingness to, let's say, bring in 
some folks that are, you know, on the edges of the DC think tank world. But to me, that disagreement, and that's how I read where Obama and Rhodes are coming from, is a disagreement that is not about ends. It's not about the ends of the state or whether or not the U.S. should have a basic right to intervene in the internal politics of foreign states that should have this kind of international police power. It's about means and whether or not those ends are best served by slightly different means. And my own view about that is that at the end of the day, yes, you know, we should absolutely invest in diplomacy, that we should be suspicious of some of the, the hawkishness and aggressiveness that the Obama administration faced. The Iran nuclear deal was a I think of as like a, the one really significant foreign policy success of his two terms. But, you know, just because you're giving more money to diplomats, if they're essentially trained within the same overarching vision of what U.S. power does, you're not going to see ultimate shifts in the underlying policies. And what is likely to happen is that over time, you'll still end up having various kinds of destructive interventionism. What about a cynical reading of, you mentioned labor support uh, for, or unwillingness to criticize at least U.S. Uh, foreign policy. Uh, a cynical reading might be that this is some international analog of a labor aristocracy argument that U.S. imperial power makes the United States better off in material terms, uh, gives us higher incomes, and therefore it's in the interest of labor to uh, promote such policies. There's a lot of stuff that was really complicated that was going on in the 40s and early 50s that, that in a sense set the stage for the decline of left internationalism. So in the early part of the 20th century, the labor movement and especially the kind of vocal radical edges of it, like the IWW, those that were associated with the Socialist Party, very consciously said that we are not nationalists. Our alliance is to the working class and the working class everywhere. And that means that foreign policy of labor has to be independent. You need an independent foreign policy from what the state does because the state is embedded in a set of business alliances. It means what it promotes abroad is the interest of capital, not the interests of workers. That was a just a standard position. It was the basis for opposition to World War I. And there's a series of red-baiting crackdowns after World War I and then after World War II that really undercuts those arguments just through the coercive violence of the state. Then there's also a pragmatic or strategic decision that was made, which is that as a way of New Deal from the 30s and 40s, um, labor leadership you know, basically agreed to a tripartite div division of decision-making between business, the state, and the union in which the state and the foreign policy establishment would get to direct the terms of God, and that would not be an issue for labor, and labor instead would focus on the kind of material questions of, of bargaining over the terms of work. But as you note, there's a third thing. That's, so it's not just about state violence. It's not just about autism. The leadership of the, the labor movement, by the time we get to the late 40s, people like Walter Ruther were committed anti-communist Cold War. And, you know, they genuinely believed on two grounds that, you know, the truth was the war economy during World War II had actually benefited labor. Empire and social democracy, in a sense, had gone hand in hand. And secondly, um, they took very seriously, and this was an absolutely plausible position in this period, you know, America's threats were existential threats to the world and to working people, the Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, and that there was a kind of moral purpose um, to American power. And all of this ended up welding um, labor unions together into the, the Cold War frame. But of course, you know, this had massively corrosive effects. It had morally corrosive effects on labor because you had labor leadership that aligned when um, unions and working people were being attacked abroad because of the idea that those unions weren't American-supported or they might have socialist or communist. You had silence, the profound silence when it came to Vietnam um, and the willingness to essentially uh, accede to the prerogatives of the state because of the alliance between the labor leadership and, and the Democratic Party. And then over time, even those material benefits the way that social democracy and empire looked like they could be bound together really split apart in the 1970s, where what became clear is that what the U.S. promoted abroad not the interests of working people, but the interests of capital. 
and that that ended up really undermining the footloose nature of capital and its power, undermining the position of working people internationally. That had reverberating effects domestically. And so, you know, through everything from privatization to austerity to various kinds of retrenchments. Um, and story by the time we get really to the last decade, that you can plausibly link social democracy over the long term with the imperial prerogatives of the state really fall apart. And in a sense, that's what we're left with. We still have a pop separates domestic and foreign, but we have nothing like either the pragmatic or ideological policy that it might have had in the late 40s. And we shouldn't forget, you mentioned this uh, earlier, but uh, we should really underscore this point. There's a lot of state repression involved, too. If you didn't go along with the uh, oh, absolutely. the agenda, you could find yourself in jail or out of a job or, you know, uh, it's it's serious business. The story of the IWW. I mean, so the the lesson that really starting in a way in the 1920s and 30s, that even radical labor figures like Hillman and, you know, John Lewis and the folks that build the CIO before it, you know, when it's still in that phase as being a kind of a, a, a democratic insurgency. The lesson that they learned from the IWW experience is that that the internationalist posture that's critical of patriotism, that takes a much more aggressive pose uh, with respect to the to the state and the, to the state's international uh, foreign policy objectives. I mean, that's a path to being tarred as un-American, to being arrested as seditious, and to you know finding yourself either killed or in jail. And so you see a steady accommodation of the language of patriotism just as a matter of political survival. And then over time, and especially in the context of World War II and, and the Cold War um, conflict with the Soviet Union, this actually becomes internalized as, a, as an ethical position. I'm speaking with the political scientist and legal scholar Aziz Rana. Now, let's look at Donald Trump, um, who is mostly an appalling figure. But every now and then he makes moves that looks like he's pulling back from uh, the national security state, from all the alliances that have created the post-World War II order. You know, he makes noises about pulling out of Syria or uh, undermining NATO. And then, you know, the entire liberal establishment uh, comes to the defense of that post-war order. Like, what are we to make of what Trump is doing uh, to uh, our, our sense of international politics? It's a telling thing that... For example, I'm somebody that's written extensively about my opposition to the kind of policies that the U.S. has pursued um, in Libya, um, certainly in Iraq and also in, in Syria. And I thought that Trump's approach to the potential pullout in Syria was, was deeply pop problematic because, you know, of the ways in which, you know, this was it was tied to the failure to actually provide any kind of humanitarian assistance given the U.S.'s complicity in actually generating the crisis there. So essentially it's going into a place, being incredibly destructive, and then saying we have um, no responsibilities at all for the folks that face the costs of our own policies. And indeed, we won't even let people that are refugees into our country despite the ways in which we've behaved. So I, I have a lot of disagreements with the way um, the policy was going to be implemented and its ties to a demonizing and kind of racist politics. But at the same time, very clearly that these wars have been destructive and that, in my view, the U.S. Uh, should not be in places like Syria. And it's noteworthy that the response was a kind of general bipartisan hand-wringing about how this is inconsistent with what the national security elites and the experts and the military say we should be doing. When in point of fact, Trump's position, even if very destructive, tells us something about the moment, which is the last 15 years has seen a massive cataclysmic failure in that national security expertise in the pursuit of the war in Iraq on false premises, in the, the way in which the U.S.'s relationship to the Middle East has been handled in particular. And um, the rallying around that, that elite in response to one of the most troubling developments of post-2016, the way in which we can think of this a little bit even with the rehabilitation of some of the figures associated with the Russia investigation. So, you know, my own view is I want to know if a foreign country interfered in the election. And I think that oligarchs like Trump should be held accountable for their financial crimes and misdeeds. And so I'm opposed to impunity. But at the same time, this has become a way of essentially 
trying to revive that that old time religion around the Cold War, where Mueller is, you know, an upstanding law enforcement figure rather than the person that was in charge of Pentbomb and head of the FBI, which put five thousand Muslims without suspicion in prison, where they faced beatings and torture, and then sued the government with Mueller as the named defendant. So that there's a rehabilitation. This rehabilitation that's from a national security elite perspective is a product of the fact that while the left has been able to to present social democratic arguments about the economy as part of the debate, there has been no reckoning to this day in the country with the fallout of Iraq or the catastrophic failures of the, the security established. And, um, and that's, I think, um, a profound problem for the country going forward. We switched the phone here because the Skype connection was failing so badly. Sorry. In the last uh, few weeks, uh, Bernie Sanders has been making somewhat equivocal comments about uh, Venezuela. Uh, People on the far left saying he's just too friendly to imperialism uh, and intervention, and people on the right uh, and the center say he's uh, uh, committing the sin of not condemning um, Maduro as a dictator. How do you read what uh, Bernie's been uh, saying uh, recently and how that fits in with your uh, vision for a, uh, a more internationalist left? Yeah, so I think the first thing that's worth saying is just the emergence of Bernie Sanders as a significant political figure in the life of the country, you know, has real foreign policy and not just domestic meaning, even if when we think of 2016, we think of it exclusively about um, the question of, um, of economic distribution, that Sanders calling himself a democratic socialist is a rejection of Cold War era and even pre-Cold War era red baiting. Perhaps the most kind of stirring moment for me um, during the campaign is when he said uh, that Henry Kissinger is no friend of mine. I mean, that's a that's a remarkable statement in the context of American politics. And he also had his own very long history of connections to left solidarity movements, including with with respect to Central and, and Latin America. And and since. You know, he's gone out of his way to attempt to create links with um, left politics globally, particularly in Europe, around issues of um, global social democracy, how to construct uh, an oppos- a coherent opposition to, to austerity, to neoliberal privatization, to the kind of unlimited and unconstrained power that corporations and corporate, um, corporate property rights um, seem to enjoy. But... You know, at the same time, I think there's been a real uncertainty, basically, about how to confront the national security state. So he tends to be best when he's on the ground that's most closely tied to what he views as the the kind of natural links with his domestic economic agenda. On the security dimensions, even though I would say that these are absolutely linked still with, with economic policy, you know, he's tended to equivocate. And I think the reason for that tendency is this issue about whether or not you can be taken seriously, essentially, by a security establishment that continues to have a great deal of kind of overweening authority. And also by because of a kind of general pervasive American politics that's shaped by it that essentially says that if you're not using force in some way, you're essentially doing nothing. Like whenever something bad happens around the world, the U.S. has a responsibility to act. And the choices are essentially an on-off switch. You do nothing or you use military force and you condemn dictators and you engage in efforts at regime change and overthrow. And it's not clear to me that he's yet, this is the way I would describe it. It's not clear to me that he's yet quite figured out how to respond to this criticism that, you know, unless you're in the business of regime change, either rhetorically or practically, that essentially you're capitulating, you're appeasing tyrants. This thought that, you know, appeasing tyrants is what uh, anti-imperial foreign policy does, you know, has a long history and it's really tied to the way in which essentially World War II and maybe more recently Rwanda, those two examples eat up a lot of the psychic space in thinking about about force. So maybe that's actually worth exploring a little bit. And also, you know, what um, what the principles should be for the kind of response that that uh, that he should be in the business of, of pursuing. The standard line uh, among political pundits is that 
the masses don't really care about foreign policy, that uh, it's an elite concern and they just want uh, you know, food on the table and uh, uh, foreclosure kept away. How might he or we uh, craft uh, an internationalist, anti-interventionist message that uh, has some mass appeal? This is the big issue, which is for too long, commentators and especially people in the Democratic Party have just taken as axiomatic the kind of James Carville thought in 92 that, you know, it's the economy stupid. Don't talk about foreign policy. Don't talk about the first Gulf War. Just talk about bread and butter issues and then leave foreign policy to to other folks. And I think the way to respond to that is to have, one, a mass kind of democratic movement politics that's that's also about, that's about foreign policy and integrates the two. I mean, that's the way that Medicare for all reached the table. It wasn't through the reasonableness of the arguments or certain experts in D.C. making the point. It was because it became a rallying cry of mobilized masses. And then that means talking about material interest in international terms, you know, talking, for example, about the security budget. So if we're interested in a Green New Deal or genuinely social democratic policies like a guaranteed job and full employment and universal access to healthcare, housing, education, you need the money to do it. And that money is not just going to come from taxing the rich. And where is the the money? Like there's $800 billion annually that's outlaid for defense. And, you know, reconceiving the defense budget as a freedom budget seems to me to be a really significant way of, of telling that story. And it's important, actually, that these two things are connected because you can't just essentially be an an anti-imperialist and say we need to cut the budget without thinking of how it's tied to social democracy because that budget is also one of the ways in which old-style New Dealism and empire have been joined. I mean, we don't think of it as as kind of New Deal government spending, but, you know, the budget right now is what provides jobs and, you know, opportunities to certain segments of really like impoverished parts of the country. And so, you need to cut that defense budget, but in conjunction and understood consciously as in conjunction with a social democratic initiative. And then I think you have the debates about impunity, about trade. Trump has opened up space to talk about trade in a way that links the foreign and the domestic, and the left needs to have an alternative account. His version of trade, of you know, bad, talking about bad trade deals, that version of the argument is inconsistent with Republican heterodox free market views, but it's not in the interest of working people. It's all about how working people abroad are essentially stealing your jobs. It's pitting the working class against each other and giving payoffs to corporations. So we need to have a, instead a conversation about trade that's bound to domestic social democracy, to things like a guaranteed job, to things like the, the freedom budget, but that you know, also will take to task the footloose nature of capital that corporations need to be responsible for what happens in their supply chains. They, there has to be a commitment that U.S. multinationals provide labor and environmental um, standards rights to, to folks, that um, there are actual constraints on um, corporate property rights and that corporations don't enjoy tax haven status. Um, so these are, these are ways of having the conversation. And to me, the other real pillar of it has to be immigration politics. So Trump links domestic and foreign through immigration, through asserting in a, in a racialized way the imperative of the border. And I think um, the left has to go to where that struggle is and to invert it and to say, well, working, you know, immigrant people are working people and that they embody a, a, you know, a primary site of class struggle in this country. And so decriminalizing immigration status, providing rights to, to immigrant workers and um, having um, immigrant activists as a central part of how we think of domestic economic freedom is key. But, you know, above all, the big point is it's not going to be done just through think tanks or just by having, let's say, Sanders elected and maybe one or two different left policy experts in the room. The only way that that national security establishment is going to, in fact, be confronted is if there's this transformation, if you know, if material demands are made in internationalist terms, and it's clear that social democracy at home requires anti-imperialism abroad. That was Aziz Rana, a professor of law at Cornell. He also has a PhD in political science. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Stefan Grappelli's version of the Internationale. Till next week, bye.